This podcast, number 832, with David Newman, is brought to you by Corey McComb, the author of a new book entitled Productivity is for Robots, How to Connect, Get Creative, and Stay Human in the New World. I encourage the readers to connect with the bigger picture of what it means to be human. Humans are not robots, and our minds are reprogrammable. So here is the good news about the bad stories we tell ourselves. There is still time to spend the facts. If you feel caught in the endless cycle of doing more and it's not making you feel like you are enough, then please read and reread Productivity is for Robots. If you want to learn more about Corey, please visit his website at www.coreymccomb.com. I hope you enjoy this engaging and thought-provoking interview with author Corey McComb. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my interview with David Newman about his new book entitled, Everything is Connected, Understanding a Complicated World. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining me from London is David Newman. And David, you want to hold up a copy of your new book called Everything is Connected, uh, understanding a complicated world. And I was going to say to you, boy, are we living in a complicated world. Um, I'd like all my listeners to go to Amazon. We'll have links. You can see that book there. You listen, you can download a Kindle version. It's only in Kindle. Um, I was just up there this morning, uh, actually checking the book out again. And if you're on Kindle Unlimited, um, you can get the book for free. So that might be a reason for you to join Kendall Unlimited. Good day to you, David, or good afternoon to you. It's good morning here. How are you doing? Uh, great, Greg. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation, and, and uh, good to speak to you and your audience. Doing well, well it's, it's a pleasure having you on, and it's always good having somebody on who's going to speak with a topic that's so vitally important uh, to the to the next generation, our generation, the next generation. It's really vitally important to everybody. And I'd like to give uh, our listeners a little bit of information and background about you before we rush off into these questions uh, to start talking about that. Uh, David was born in London and then he was moved to Australia. His parents immigrated there shortly after his birth. Um, and he returned to London as a child after school and went to Manchester University, where in 1977, he obtained the first class honor degree in modern history and economics. You know, everyone's probably wondering, how did he become an, a, a, an environmental activist? Well, we're going to tell you. Uh, he lived there for 30 years, and in that time, was he did everything. He was a waiter, a builder, a real estate agent, uh, or a state agent, a uh, translator, um, and he became an environmental activist and he met and worked for one of Greenpeace founders for 13 years in a time he led Greenpeace Italy and worked at the international headquarters uh, for a short time. Um, and in 2015, he was also advisor to the Italian environmental minister, minister for a year. He ran several associations and became one of Italy's leading advocates for waste management and specifically for food waste. Italy has become the world's leading country for food waste treatment. And that's a surprise because I didn't know that myself. And in 2014, he left Italy 
and he lived in Jordan. And then the end of 2016, he returned to London, where he now lives and works with the same issues, especially food waste recycling. And in 2020, he was voted among the top 10 influencers in the United Kingdom environmental sector. Uh, David advocates passionately for environmental causes, but especially for those to do with the waste management and climate change. Well, David, you know, food waste is a big issue. um, And there's a lot of governmental agencies, especially in my state, that used to uh, prohibit uh, how leftover food was, you know, I even talk about leftover food given to the poor, right? It was like, oh, no, you can't do that. Now, it's reversed so much that in the state of California, they're saying these markets can't throw the food away. They have to give it away, including Whole Foods and all these big organizations that are doing that. Your background is really diverse, you know, and your history as an activist and working for Greenpeace for 13. What would you tell the listeners about becoming their own activist or advocate for changes in the environment, whether it's food waste, air pollution, CO2 emissions, whatever they might have a passion about, because I think there's a lot of people sitting on the sidelines, David, and they don't get involved. They literally just do their recycling. They do whatever they're going to do, but they're not really involved. How would you tell people if they want to step up and get involved, how could they get involved? Thanks, Greg. And thanks for the long introduction. Um, You know, uh, firstly, let's assume that most people are going to be passive about most things. Uh, And this is normal, you know, Um, and and people have their families, they have their day jobs, they're they're, they're busy and and they don't have the time to to, 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 to get involved in activism. Um, If you want to get involved in activism, um, there are a number of routes. Uh, But above all, you've got to ask yourself the question, what do you want to achieve? What is the thing that really passions you, you know? Um, Some of these things happen by accident. You know, I I ended up in, in the waste and the food waste industry completely and totally by accident, not by, not by design. You know, mm-hmm. I, ne- I never ever thought I was going to do that. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's ask yourself what you're passionate about. Are you passionate about the, the air quality? You live in a city and the air's dirty. Are you passionate about the, the quality of your soil because you live in the, in a rural area and, and you, you know, you, you understand the link between soil and health and food health. Uh, are you passionate about forests and the way in which we, we, um, we, we cut down and burn our forests across the world. Are you passionate about your oceans and, and, and getting waste out of your oceans and ensuring your oceans are healthy and, and providing uh, you know, food for us for, for generations to come? So, so, so look at some of the things that, that, you know, that, that make you passionate. I, you know, are you passionate about biodiversity, birds and, and animals? Uh, and, and then look for, look for some of the organizations who are working on those issues which interest you. And, you know, you can even start with, with simple things like just turning up to meetings, giving them a bit of a hand, talking to people, learning about things, informing yourself. Um, and you will, if you are passionate about that, you will gradually um, get more and more involved. And that's exactly how it happened with me, Greg. You know, I didn't start out to be an environmental activist. I got- yeah, I, I know that Al Gore started up a big movement here, uh, obviously, in this country and his movie has been seen all over the world, but um, they asked me to join. And I always kind of regret not joining that movement. Now, is it available? Sure. And I'm talking to my listeners that live in the United States 
there is a movement that Al Gore still uh, climate action initiative program that people could get involved in. And I would highly recommend go checking it out. Great videos, great website, opportunity for people to become advocates. And then you do these meetings and you go to the meetings and you help actually create awareness about what's going on. I think that's good. Now you were, you're a thought leader in the arena of food waste. We talked about this just a tad before we got on that, you know, Hey, in my state, (laughs) you can't even uh, get rid of food, meaning just throw it away anymore. Um, I know that many of the listeners probably don't understand the issues associated with food waste. So could you articulate a little bit and provide us with some insights on how bad this environmental issue is and what's actually happened, not only regionally, but maybe globally. Um, Because I don't think, I don't think people, I don't think people think about food waste. I'll be honest with you. It's like you, you're talking about something that's foreign to probably 90% of my listeners. Yeah. Um, You know, and and it's understandable, isn't it? Because we, there's one thing to understand about food and, and living in the Western world is that food is very, very cheap for us. You know, when my parents were, were, were young people, f- food was a third of their budget. Today, on average in America, food is 8% of somebody's budget. Um, and, and so, you, you know, you don't, you don't really think about the, the consequences of waste. My parents as young people would never waste food because it cost them so much mm-hmm. of the money they had. So food is very, very cheap. Uh, if we add up food around the world and the way in which we waste it from farm through to fork, we waste about 40% of our global food production. Wow. That's like the whole area of China, planting it and then destroying those crops at the end of the year. That's how crazy. much we, Yeah, crazy. And if we were to measure that in terms of the greenhouse gases, in terms of the water, in terms of the energy, in terms of the cost, etc., it's enormous. It's the, it's the third single biggest element of greenhouse gases. If we were to China, the United States... Food waste would be the third biggest producer of greenhouse gases in the world. That's how big a problem it is. Wow. Wow. So what is it that you did and how do you help or did you help as an advocate and somebody who worked in the governments in Italy to help with food waste? What specific actions uh, did, did you take or implement or come up and invent? What are some of the new things that are going on around food waste? Okay, well, there's um, Italy started out before anybody else, um, and not, not just because I was there, but because there are a lot of good people working on this issue 20 years ago um, who understood that if you collected food waste and you separately collected it and you treated it, you made compost from it, and you put that compost back to soil, you would create a lot of virtuous cycles and at the same time stop a lot of those greenhouse gas emissions going into the atmosphere. And so this is what we started to do 20 years ago, and that requires a whole series of laws. It requires uh, investments, and it requires plants, etc. And, and, and a lot of companies have started, a lot of countries have started to catch up on that. You know, California has its own uh, organics recycling program, um, and New York, for example, the New York State has now banned organics to landfill, and there's organics recycling programs going on there. And what we found, Greg, is that the more you 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 get people to recycle their food waste back to composting, the less food waste they actually produce. Mm. See it. They can measure it. 
they can understand it. Well, let's delineate for a second, David. I think it's important what you're talking about. I think for our listeners and even for me, food waste comes in two ways. Stuff you don't eat off the table that you throw into a garbage can or the or or into the uh, disposal in our country. Garbage disposals, I know in some countries there aren't as many, right? Um, or I'm talking about, too, the food waste that farmers overproduce and there's a lot of extra tomatoes or carrots or whatever it might be. Now, it depends on how you look at that at food waste. In some cases, we see where they plow it under um, and it never gets into anybody's hands. So maybe I'm I'm a little bit off here, but to me, both of those are wasteful. Um, and I'm wondering, are you working on both sides of the aisle? Sure. I, I work on the end of the pipeline. You know, what happens when you've got it into a restaurant or you've got it into a cafe or into your home and, you you know, you've got stuff that's gone rotten or you've got banana peels or you've got leftovers on your plate. Um, and that is millions and millions and millions of tons. Working on the cycle before that right. is, on the, is on the prevention of that food waste. So, in other words, ensuring that less is produced, that is thrown away, that what is produced is brought to market. You know, in, the, in developing countries, a hell of a lot of food waste happens simply because they don't have refrigerated transport. It doesn't, it doesn't ever make it to market. It's rotten by the time. It right, happens. right. So there's, there's a lot of work going on right through the, all the United Nations agencies on that prevention, prevention. Then there's a lot of work, and Italy and France were leaders on this, and I'm glad also to hear in California is a lot of work going on on throwing food away that could be eaten. Right. And the United Kingdom has also got, got its head around this. And uh, some countries now have laws where it is illegal to do that. So supermarkets have to give away food, uh, sandwich bars. You know, they have food at the end of the day. They can no longer throw it away. They have to donate it to charity. It has to go back to people who, who need it. Now, that is fantastic because that creates a whole culture of prevention upstream. Correct. Now you're preventing more waste when you do that, right? Because obviously, you know, I tell a little story to people, you know, I hold workshops or I was holding workshops pre-COVID. You know, you'd go to a hotel and you'd order a buffet. And if people didn't eat it all, uh, the hotel rules were we take that and we throw it away. And no matter no matter what was going on. So I would go up to the guys that did that and I said, hey, here's $40. I just want you to put it in containers so I can go give it to the needy underneath the freeway, the bridges, right? And I did that time and time and time again, sandwich bread, meats, whatever, mayonnaise, whatever it was that was there. Yet the law was so specific that those guys were breaking the law. Every time I handed them 40 or $50 for the buffet to be put in there, they were breaking the law because of some food regulation. But it seems so nonsensical, right? Yeah. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And I think you and I could talk forever about food, but your book covers more than just food. So I want to move on to another topic here. And that is environmental issues, which have been here since the 1900s. You cited the Clean Air Act, and you even had a picture in your book of a policeman wearing a mask. Uh, it, it, it goes back to 1956 and how bad the air pollution was uh, in 63. Uh, it was impossible to see the other side of the road, right? It's like literally that's how bad it was. 
I lived outside of Los Angeles at the time in 1963, and we had mountains right behind us, and I couldn't even see the mountains because the air pollution was so bad in 63. And I had a paper route, and I remember running the paper route on my bike, and I had to come home and put my head in the freezer because I was gasping because I had taken in so much of the pollution from the air because it was, it was so bad. How important is the challenge that we face with increased pollution affecting the ozone layer and the heating of the planet? Look, this is talked about all the time, you know, the Paris Accord, the the Green New Deal. Um, Everybody's out there and all these scientists are running around and some of them are saying, hey, we still have time. Others are not saying we have much time at all. And some are saying we're beyond it already. You know, that, that literally the, the, that the, you know, the polar ice caps are melting and there isn't time left. And, you know, so okay. where in your estimation as an environmentalist do we really stand? Okay, well, you've asked me a lot of questions there. Yeah. So let's, let's try and break them. You can unpack it, I'm sure. Yeah, let's try and unpack it. Let's, <laughs> let's take, firstly, the local city air pollution situation. Mm-hmm. Okay. The reason I had that photo in my book was to show you to show the reader that environmental activism and environmental uh, changes, environmental laws work. We now no longer have in our Western European cities or in Los Angeles or in London, that same situation, which we had 50 years ago. No, we, we don't. No. We ended up. We got to grips with it. We worked. We did the laws. We protested. We got active. We changed it. We have a much, much better situation. But when we take the developing world, when we take the, the air quality in cities in India, India and in China, they have exactly that situation which we had 50, 60 years ago because they've gone through the same curve of development, the same curve of pollution that we went through. When we- mm-hmm. Okay, so that's one thing. And, of course, that all contributes to climate change. But climate change and, and, and the, the emissions of, of, of carbon dioxide and methane and other gases into, into, the, into, into the air Let's be clear about this. CO2 is itself not a pollutant. It's in in the air we breathe, and it is naturally in the air we breathe. But the problem is that the concentration of CO2 is getting higher and higher and higher. That is creating that greenhouse gas effect, which you'll see in my book, you know, the diagrams of it. Yeah. Locking in heat. Which is holding in the heat. Yeah. Which which is heating our planet. We're supposedly two degrees warmer now than we were when yeah we're we're about a degree above where we were in the pre-industrial revolution okay 150 years ago but we are rapidly heading towards i think within the next 10 years uh to two degrees above um and that is the point at which scientists say that there will be some tipping points again you can see these tipping points in the book which will be irremediable we will not be able to turn those around once we hit them and those tipping points are, as you mentioned, the melting of the polar ice caps, the melting of the glaciers and our mountains, um, and uh, the, the increase. Well, but if you even look in California, and I, I bring it back to here, fires. we've had so many fires this year, just even this year and last year, that thousands of homes have been lost, thousands. Uh, hundreds of people have died in the process. Yeah, sure. um, forests have been devastated. Um, 900,000 acres, the last fire, if you can just imagine 900,000 acres, you know, burnt in California and 
that was only one of about 24 fires that were out of control through the course of our summer. Um, uh, and plus Australia, uh, Australia. And so Amazon. all the scientists say that the global warming is causing this. No, it's not causing it. It's not causing it. Let's be clear. Global warming is accelerating it and accentuating it. It's making it worse. Right. But when I was a child and we were living in in northern Queensland in in Australia, I remember at night going to bed, looking at the hills around our town burning. Right. 60 years ago. Okay. So these things happened always in nature. But what has got worse is that we have, because we are increasing the temperature of our planet, we are increasing the intensity and the scale at which these things happen. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, we, we reach these tipping points, Greg, where it becomes impossible to stop them. And we are getting very, very close to that. And let me make a point about the scientists, because there's a lot of skepticism, particularly in your country, about the science behind climate change. Well, the science behind climate change includes scientists from every single country in the world and when these reports come out from the United Nations Change uh, Secretariat, they come off signed by every single country in the world. Okay, and that includes until last year, it included scientists of the United States, but also Saudi Arabia or, or Venezuela or other, you know, oil-producing countries. So there is a to- when these reports come out from the United Nations, they are totally consensual. There is total consensus on. So what we are getting from the scientists actually is possibly not the worst case scenario because what they are often writing is compromised by politics. Right, 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 right. It could well be that actually the acceleration is faster than we are told. Well, the thing that you you said to me when we did our pre-interview before this interview and is apparent in the book is personally, you're an optimist. Um, and I wouldn't say that that's contrary. I would say there's a lot of people in your position are optimists. And it comes to the environment. How can the technology and awareness about these issues help us solve many of environmental interest issues that we're faced with? Look, technology is speeding up. We know it's, you know, you look at electric cars. You cited that. You, you put a picture of a Tesla in your book right? Um, We have solar power now. We have wind power now. We have one of the biggest corporations in the world in the United States dedicating $200 billion, and that's Amazon, Jeff Bezos, to environmental all-electric vehicles. Everything that he drives now is going to be an electric vehicle by 2025. Um, When you have advocates like that stepping up, that makes a huge difference. It sets the pace, for many other organizations to follow. What is what fuels your optimism? Because when you and I were on the phone in the first interview, you <laughs> said, wonder, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you said to me, well, it isn't doom and gloom. No, listen, uh, we are accelerating climate change faster than I think we, we, we understand. Uh, at the same time, we have technologies and increasingly all the capital which is critical because the book, the book is about money, uh, all of the capital that we need to turn that around. The question we have to ask is whether we can turn it around quickly enough and, and what the consequences will be and how quickly we can turn that around. 
My optimism derives from the fact that we do today have all the technologies that we need. If we can put a, a vessel or a, a spacecraft on Mars, and we have, and we have, do you think we can't resolve the problem of energy on, on planet Earth? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a no-brainer. It's simple in comparison. Right. right. Okay? If we could send a man on the moon in 1960, mm-hmm. you think we can't understand the questions about climate? Of course we do. What we don't, what we have not understood is how far it has gone so quickly and how to reallocate the money that we spend rather than to destruction but to an ec- ecological regeneration. That is well, well, and I think it's it's in our best interest. You know, if you look at flooding, fires, whatever the destruction is from the natural environment as a result of the global warming, the insurance carriers who are having to pay claims, I mean, this is real. You said follow the money, right? So look, the amount of money that needs to be allocated is a pittance in comparison to what the destruction actually could be. Okay. So, you know, there's so many things that could change and you have a real eye-opening chart in a book about how our world's population, let's switch topics here again, because population just keeps growing. Um, The death rate and the population uh, population increase rate is obviously kind of outpacing in those third world countries Uh, in our countries in Sweden and whatever, I wouldn't say we're at zero population growth, but we're pretty close. Um, I know certain countries are, but that chart you showed, it says it's growing. And you said at the end of the century, 10 billion inhabitants. Okay. Okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe we're going to be 10 billion inhabitants. Uh, Since my book was published, new analysis has been made of population growth, which is slightly um, is some, somewhat lower than that, around nine, nine to nine and a half billion inhabitants. But, but what, it, what we've seen over the last year is a dramatic, now evidence of dramatic decline in birth rates, even in developing countries. Mm-hmm. What is going to happen? The city of Lagos in Nigeria is today about 15 million people. By the end of this century, the projection is that it will be 100 million. The city of Lagos alone will be bigger than Germany, for example. Wow. So that you have that curve, which is almost irreversible because, of course, you have so many young people, they will procreate. Mm -hmm. Then you have the whole situation, which if you take almost all of Europe except possibly uh, Great Britain, the population is already in decline from Spain to Portugal through to Italy and dramatically in decline in Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe will fall. 25% of the population of Eastern Europe will disappear by 2050. And in decline in Japan as well, right? Japan, uh, even. even Japan's having a problem economically taking care of the old people because there aren't enough younger people to pay into the system, right? And even even in China, you've seen the effect of the one-child family is now a falling population. Right. you know, let's, let's get this, in, in, again, into proportion. You have, you know, Africa, the population is booming. Uh, the rest of the world, this is no longer the case. So I'm, I'm optimistic on this because, you know, humanity, uh, and you'll see this in, in one of the first chapters of the book, humanity is a great success story, Greg. You know, when I was a kid, and, you know, you're, you're not a dissimilar age to me, the population was around about three, three and a half billion. We're mm-hmm. over 
than billions a day. We no longer have famines. We have managed to feed 90% of our population. We managed to give them schooling, uh, healthcare, uh, access to technology, access to communications. Wow, what a goddamn success story. You know, if you, if you look back 50 years ago and said, this is what's going to happen, you would have, you would have thought, ah, he's crazy. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, in my 66 years, I've seen a lot. I mean, I was a big, I still am. I'm in one of his books, actually, um, a big follower of Buckminster Fuller. And he used to say that if you would spend less money on weaponry and more more money on basically putting it back in, because if you look at how much money we spend on defense, the amount of money that goes into that and more money on livingry is what he used to say. He's kind of a crazy guy, right? A geodesic dome guy. But if you think about what the United States just puts into defense or all the defense budgets worldwide, and you put that into feeding people and clothing people and giving people schooling and whatever, the kind of, I wouldn't say utopia, but heading toward a totally different world than what we've got today, right? You know, I think um, we should stop beating ourselves up and stop feeling guilty about the world we have today because it's a fantastic world. We live in a magnificent time to be a human being. Yeah. The golden age of humanity. Now, having said that, we have a lot of poor people. We have a lot of uneducated people. We have a lot of disadvantaged people. We have a lot of exploited people. Hey, we always had them, by the way. That's not new. (laughs) They were always there. Yeah. What what the, the difference is today in 2020 between 2020 and 1920 is that we are conscious of that and we work together as a global international community to try to resolve some of those issues. That's fundamentally different. A hundred years ago, we went to war. Today, we don't like each other necessarily all the time, but we don't go out and kill each other. Right. You know, right. we collaborate. Uh, and that's the fundamental difference. When you come down to your, your, your money and your spending, you know, my last chapter in, in the book on, on how we spend our money and how we allocate it, and the money that we need to do the things that we should be doing, yeah, it's got to come out of misallocating our spending in, 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 in stupid weaponry and stupid uh, military expenses, which, by the way, we're never, ever going to be able to Yeah, use. we're not using – you're right, we are not. You know, and, and you had a great story in the book about Eleanor Roosevelt. I, I didn't know that. And this was regarding the UN passing the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in December 1948. Um, You go on to say that it was inspired by her. Um, Why is this declaration about our human rights so important? What has it done in uniting our governmental organizations worldwide? And if you would speak about the sustainable development goals, you had that in the book as well. Yeah. You know, it... uh complex issues, but let's try to simplify them for, for, for the listeners. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, after her, her husband FDR uh, died, uh, didn't stop. Um, and she was really an inspirational figure and worked extraordinarily hard at a time when women were not in politics. Again, in 1948, women were not involved in politics generally. Um, to get that Universal Declaration of Human Rights put through, and, and even countries, you know, the Soviet Union, or, or, or Chinese, you know, communist China had absolutely no intention whatsoever of, of even abiding by the first line of it, but they signed it. Now, what that has done is, is that has sort of created in a way that the building block of a whole series of other uh, international agreements 
which have come down today to agreements in which we, uh, as an international community, decide to work together. And the Sustainable Development Goals are the latest iteration of those uh, agreements, which we have decided as an international community, every country signed up to this a few years ago, that by 2030, we would do a whole series of things, improve the gender equality, improve the quality of our air, our water, our soils, improve access to education, healthcare, etc. And we have these 17 goals, which we call the Sustainable Development Goals, which we've all signed up to. And that really comes back to what happened in 1948 when Eleanor Roosevelt, by power of personality, by sheer weight of history and personality, brought people together. And I'm, I'm feeling emotional as I'm saying this, but brought people together to sign up to something which was truly inspirational. Now, I bet that you cannot go to the United Nations building in New York and read that without crying. Well, you actually quoted what was written that's there. Such a stunning declaration. Yeah, yeah it really and, was. And, and for that time, and that really gives also global citizens the right to say to their, their governments, hey, you signed up to this. You can't beat me up. You can't lock me in prison because you've said and you've signed that I have the right to protest, that I have the right to raise my voice, that I have the right to criticize you. Goddamn, you signed that. That is a fundamental bedrock of our freedoms today. It, it's a phenomenal piece of, if you want to call it legislation, but an enactment that uh, got passed. Um, and uh, really it's worth people reading it. It's in the book. Um, you cited it in the book. Now, let's. everybody's been talking about coronavirus. We've lost over a million and a half people worldwide here in the United States, almost 300,000. It's it's primary in our news every day, your news every day. Now we've got this thing. But you mentioned that the coronavirus pandemic has done more for air quality, CO2 emissions, and energy production uh, with no policy. Uh, in other words, we didn't have to go create policies. And I, I can as- assume what you'll talk about. Less people are traveling, so less air pollution from the jetliners. Less people are going into restaurants, so obviously not as much food waste. I mean, the the list goes on and on and on when you go into confinement. But what has this effect been on CO2 emissions? Well, I think for the the first time in in the last decade, this year will actually be a year in which we see a small decrease in in CO2 emissions. Um, But I think... Uh, let's say let's say let's unpack this question of the coronavirus i try to do that in, in the book a little bit uh, first thing is uh, had this been 50 years ago there wouldn't be one and a half million people dead there would probably be 150 million people dead. okay so let's again celebrate humanity because we have not everywhere but we have had healthcare systems that have been able to look after people we have a vaccine after 10 months quite an incredible achievement Hats off to the scientists. We have taken action which have locked down people, and people have generally obeyed it. Countries have, whole countries are completely locked down. Can you imagine that? That's quite a, quite a phenomenal achievement. People have actually, generally speaking, obeyed the government. So had this been as it was in 1920, the global flu epidemic wiped out 50 million people. Yeah. Yeah. So let's 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 get it into proportion. This is a disaster, but 
it is a managed disaster and one which, had it been 10, 20 or 30 years ago, would have been far, far worse. So humanity has, has, has done a great job. The second thing is um, that technology, here we are talking in California and London, right. as, as evidence, technology has now allowed us to change the way in which a lot of people can work. Now, if you work in a factory or a meatpacking or you work in a shop, of course, technology is not going to be of much help. But for many people, that has meant you don't need to go somewhere to work. Mm -hmm. right. It's fundamentally changed the way in which millions and millions of people work. What that means is if, if we can understand that, we can actually avoid creating pockets of poverty by ensuring everybody has got broadband connections so that everybody can have that choice about whether they go to work or not, okay? And we can revitalize city centers. I live in the financial heart of London. It's empty. It's deserted. Mm -hmm. Now, revitalize those city centers by actually having people living in them again rather than just office workers. Right, right. You know? and, 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 and if we build a new society and we look at ways in which we can uh, build on the lessons that the coronavirus has taught us, um, there's lots of positives that we can take from it. Yeah, no, it's everything you cite from, you know, people consuming less fossil fuels because they're not driving their cars. Um, you know, here in our state, uh, the, the insurance carriers have reduced our rates by 15% because we're not driving our cars. So people are saving money. Uh, you look at all of the ways in which it's affected our world, meaning from the standpoint of um, what we're doing to the environment, positively. Unfortunately, we're still seeing lots of deaths. Um, that's not a, a good sign. But I think we're going to cross over that bump here pretty quick, uh, especially with the vaccine and getting enough people vaccine and getting to herd immunity with this thing. Let's talk about our choices for a minute. Um, personal choices that we make, because obviously the choices we make, every choice we make can affect the environment from being a vegetarian to a vegan, to the cars we choose to drive, to the way we heat our homes, to the solar power that could be on them or the cars we could drive, which are electric. Um, what positive impact is having on the environment? And what do you see in the future for all these technology advances? In other words, we've seen tremendous advances in the last five years, just phenomenal advances. The question is, is do you see anything more? I mean, I read books on futurism, you know, uh, uh, Uber, which is the uh, taxi company, you know, where people are driving. In Los Angeles, they're currently up in the Santa Monica Hills and they are testing flying cars. Okay, so, you know, when you go all the way from, somebody being able to commute in five minutes and not go on a freeway and emit all those emissions. And if Uber does something with a flying car, um, you know, I mean, yeah, they're out there. We know they're out there. I have a feeling they are coming. Right. So what, what are your thoughts on all of this? Um, there was a, I think I quoted in the book, you know, a, a, a Danish, Nobel Prize winner, Neil Bowles, who said um, making predictions is very difficult, especially if they're about the future. Yeah. <laughs> well, then there are no predictions. So we won't let so, you make any, David. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, listen, but listen, I think that uh, joke, joking aside, 
Um, if you look back, it gives you, generally speaking, a fairly good view of what's going to happen. Not always. We have black swans. But the, 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 the trajectory of human progress is continually upwards. It has its moments, the coronavirus, the Second World War, but it is continually upwards. And, and techno technological development is increasingly fast. We yeah. are living in the, in the period of the fastest technological development we have ever had as human beings. And I don't think that's going to slow down. I think that's going to increase. Now, I don't know what's coming around the corner, but what I do know that's coming around the corner is going to be exciting. It's going to be probably, in terms of our impact upon the planet, better than some of the things we do today because we're all aware of those impacts. Yeah. Your, your new government that's coming in in January and very, very clear signals about the whole direction it's going to take oh, yeah. four years. So we are aware of that. We have all committed around the world to uh, greater sustainability, to climate change targets. Even China just recently declared net zero carbon emissions by 2060. Unthinkable five years ago. So yeah. all the things, all these technologies are moving in that direction. So there is hope, and that's why I'm optimistic. Well, I think, you know, having had Stephen Kotler on here, who's a quite a futurist, been on four or five or six times, if you look at everything from AI to robots to the speed of computers to all of the things which are speeding up how we work. Now, the next question will be is, if robots do what they're expected to do, um, you know, what is it for the human species, meaning you and I, because now our only value is in being thought leaders, is in our way to try and solve problems. It isn't about putting bolts on cars in a factory anymore, because the reality is very little of that is going to continue to be done as sophisticated these robots get. So yeah. now you've got an issue of, you know, how do we keep people employed and continue to get them revenue, you know, listen, all kinds listen, of things. Listen, Greg, you're a, you're a wise man, and I, and I hope I'm not too stupid, but I remember the debate 25, 30 years ago, what's going to happen when computers take over? Oh, yeah. you're redundant, you know? Yeah. Uh, okay. And, uh, of course, you know, the same debate happened 200 years ago. What's going to happen when the steam engine takes over? Oh, we're all going to be redundant. Yeah. And yeah. Well, I, are, until, you know, until the coronavirus hit nine months ago, uh, the Western world, more or less, had full employment. True. And and this is, I think, this jolt that we've gone through is a wake-up call for everybody to know that we can still survive through this and come out the other side uh, with much greater understanding about how we can work. Just like you said, you and I are on this call with Zoom today, right? Like millions of Zoom calls are occurring every day. Who would have ever thought that the technology could have gotten so efficient in such a short period of time? But it is a very, very interesting time to live in. I agree with you. It's, it's a very wonderful, extraordinarily yeah. exciting time. And you know, and I, and I really, you know, say to your listeners, "Hey, be optimistic about the future, guys and girls, because it is a wonderful future." Yeah, we have. You know, I um, agree with you. And you know, if you were going to leave the listeners with Three positive actions um, that they could take away from your book, um, from our interview today. What would be 
the reason you want them to be optimistic and less pessimistic about the future um, as global citizens, right? Not as just citizens in their own little county, but as global citizens from a big picture standpoint. Well, I thought about this and I, and I actually I had to think a lot about this because that's a tough question, you know, um, and I actually had to write some things down. Um, but I'm not even going to uh, refer to what I wrote down because I'm, I'm going to answer differently to the, the, to the answers that I thought I was going to give you. Um, and, and the first answer is that the, the coronavirus has shown, just as the global economy before that show, showed, that we are all completely connected. Everything we do, from the moment we get up in the morning to the moment we go to bed at night, is connected to something happening somewhere else on the planet, whether it's through the products that we have bought that have travelled around the planet to us, it's through the energy we consume, whether it's through the air we breathe, the food we eat, the wine we drink, we are all connected. And that is something to celebrate because that is actually new. That's the last century out of the right. hundreds of years human beings have been on the planet. That is, that is a, a very, very new thing. So, you know, so firstly, great. Think about your role as a global citizen and the things you do as a global citizen because they will have an impact somewhere else. But be positive about that because you can have an impact somewhere else. Okay? So there's two sides to that. Well, we're having an impact everywhere else. That's why yeah. your book is called Everything is Connected. <laughs> everything is connected. We are connected to everything. But it is complicated. That's the other part. The second, you know, it, it's complicated in the sense that, you know, hey, I buy something off of the Internet through Amazon that was made in China that had to come on a boat or a plane. Right. So the, the fossil fuels that are being used to transport that. You know, if you look at the um, what is the the thing the environmentalists used to do is um, from cradle to grave, they used to look at, hey, you know, this plastic is made here from, you know, uh, from petroleum product. And then the kid gets a little toy and then he outgrows the toy and the parents throw that in some waste recycle thing because it doesn't go anywhere. Um, you know, that's pretty when you follow the life cycle of a product, whether it's here every Saturday, you can go down to one of our corners and we have electronic waste recycle at schools. They like pick it up, right? Probably in London as well. Hey, throw away your old computer or your old monitor or your old whatever. Well, we know, right? I think you do. At least I think this is what's happening. It's being put on a boat, sent back to China to take all the pieces and parts out of it. Where it's going from there, I don't know. I have no idea, but uh, it well, certainly uh, is interesting. Well, you can see there's a, there's a piece in my book about this, um, and uh, and unfortunately, I, I wish it were going back to China, and I wish it were being taken apart, and I wish it were. With, with, oh, so it's not. That's but that's actually, a but actually, but actually, a hell of a lot of it is just being dumped, dumped, uh, and uh, you know, and, and very poor people, particularly in Africa, are, are are taking the consequences of that and trying to strip out a bit of the copper and the gold and make a little bit of money out of it. Um, so yeah, that is the negatives and there's the positives of of interconnectedness and and, and sure. Um, the poorer parts of our world community uh, have a lot more of the negative consequences of that than, than privileged parts like you and I do, Greg. Yeah, it's like getting rid of, you know, plastic recycling anymore. It, it comes to a point where 
it costs more to ship it overseas to have it uh, repurposed. And so what ends up happening is we're seeing our landfills here. Now the, the recyclers can't get rid of it. China doesn't want it anymore. Uh, you know, all these other countries don't want that plastic anymore. And that is, you know, you did talk about in your book, the, the big ocean, yeah. the plastic. Okay, don't, I mean, don't get me started about plastic. Maybe we, <laughs> maybe we can do another webinar. We probably plastic, should but... do another webinar around the uh, a garbage patch that's out in the ocean. That's uh, I, how many it's... miles wide is it now? Oh, hundreds. But, you know, the, yeah. the, the problem with the plastics industry, of course, is that but for, for, for decades, there's no full world that every piece of plastic that goes into the environment is never going to be recycled. I mean, it's yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I, you know, I had this conversation, uh, not to interrupt you, but I had this conversation with my wife walking. It's like, you know, when you go to buy something, whether it's at Costco or Amazon or wherever, and you open it up and there's a box and then inside of it is a shrink wrapped something. And then you've got a, cut that and then that's going to end up and i'm like why are they not thinking through packaging better than they are i mean it doesn't it's not necessary for it to have these five layers of plastic you've got to get through to get it out you know it just aggravates me i i well there's just one answer great because it's the cheapest way of doing it there you go money follow the money again (laughs) it's the cheapest way of doing it there's no and there's no environmental cost to doing that well, we should have you back on to talk about the uh, garbage patch out in the ocean and the and the yeah. plastic pollution because it is plastic an issue. In the ocean, but so. you know, your book is an eye opener for anybody, and I recommend everybody. We're going to have a link to Amazon, so you can go up and get the Kindle version. This book is not in a paperback version, and I that's a good reason he didn't want to mess up with the environment anymore. You don't have to cut down another tree to get a book. Uh, you virtually can have this just electronically. And there is obviously a little bit of an environmental impact when everybody uses the internet because of the resources it uses to download the book. It just depends on how crazy you want to get. But he did do it the most environmentally sensitive way. So for all my listeners, you'll see a link. Uh, It will take you to Amazon to go get this book. Um, I would highly recommend that you pick it up. David, it's been a pleasure having you on. Everything is connected. Thank you for spending the time with us today and informing our listeners not only about your book, but many of the issues that we currently face. And more importantly, about leaving everybody on an upbeat, positive note, not being a pessimist about where it's going. We're living in wonderful times and embrace it. So thanks for being on. Thank you, Greg. And and thank you to all your listeners for, for being with us.